in church. It's not you, it's him. It's really true. All right. Our scripture passage this morning is going to be Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May our hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Amen. Thanks, Becca.
If you're new with us this morning, um, we have a little welcome gift for you. If I do talk too fast, you can read the book I wrote as slow as you want. Um, and there's chocolate and stuff in it. So uh, we'd love to give this to you if you're new, just out there to the right, I think it is, that you can get that. Also, um, somebody left their car keys. I think this is the kind that you can actually drive the car away um, with. So if this is your car, it'll be in the welcome center at the end of the service. Okay? Great. We sh- okay, I have a joke, but I'll just let that go. Okay. Um, Uh, you, you may feel like that, that was a Good Friday um, psalm as opposed to a Resurrection Sunday uh, passage, but the death and resurrection of Christ are one thing. And the, when we talk about rising, it, that's always relative to like what you're rising up and out of. And you have to be clear about that before you understand what rising is. Uh, for a lot of us, this last year was on some level kind of a test of our own resiliency, our ability to get knocked down and get back up again. For some people, it was pretty catastrophic. For other people, it was like first world problems, but it was still difficult for most of us. And um, over the several weeks at High Point, we're going to do a series called Risen, where we're going to go through a number of psalms where some human is, is in the pit for some reason, for some human problem, and how trust in God and how the work of God can cause us to rise right? This morning, I want to talk about the one who did it best, and I want to do it out of the psalm that might be the worst. This, this psalm is sort of tied for first as like the most painful, depressing, hurt, upset psalm in the whole ball, in the whole—I'm saying Bible and book at the same time. That's why it came out ball. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> here's the thing that we need to take away from this. It's very—it's—it's it is totally true to look at the death and resurrection of Christ as a once-for-all event in which um, God did a particular work in the person of his Son that is singularly unique and completely different from us. That's completely right. He was the God-man, and the God part of the God-man was doing all that stuff, and we're not doing any of that. But one of the things that's really interesting about the, the truth of the work of Christ is that he also did it as the God-man— That is, that he was fully human in doing all these things, and in doing so, he did them as a human person. And he experienced them as a human person, and in some ways, we are supposed to see ourselves in him. And not just in the guilt of our sin. That's definitely there. You should see him dying in your place, the guilt of your sin. But that's not the only thing he does as you in your place, and that we can learn from and take from it. The the thing to see in the cross is not just our shame, but in some ways also our glory. I mean, try to put, put this together. But under this truth, whether you're facing the discouragement of like just every normal day, or this level of discouragement in Psalm 22, the absolute at the bottom, life being stolen from you in injustice and violence from wicked men in a way that feels like you're completely abandoned by God, though as bad as it can get, right? And we'll all get there some point when we die, right? Death will feel like a kind of abandonment when we experience it, I'm sure. I've seen a bunch of them. That's about how it goes, it seems like, for most everybody. Most things at that time are out of your control. Whether the depression of the day or whether your death. Most things are out of your control. There's only a few things in your control. The main thing that's in your control is that you have the ability to cry out to your God. When everything else has been taken away from you, like the psalmist in Psalm 22 and in Christ as he lives out that psalm, everything else is taken away. 
There's only one act of individuality, only one act of faith, only one act of being who you're meant to be made in the image of God. And that is, is that the right thing to do when treated this way is to cry out, right? It's kind of interesting that for some people um, in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel where he record, where they record Jesus saying as one of his last statements as a living human before his resurrection, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That for a lot of people, they read that and it really shakes their faith because they're like, oh man, I guess at the end he sort of forgot who he was. Instead of recognizing that in Mark's gospel for 15 chapters, Jesus knows exactly who he is at every single moment, including like the other six hours of the crucifixion. I mean, you really think this is a guy who like five hours, you know, like 12 hours into being beaten and tortured, where there's a guy who's screaming profanity at him for three hours, who finally turns around and repents and is like, you know what, I, I'm, I was wrong. You don't deserve this. And then he goes, you'll be with me in paradise. Like he can forgive while dying. Like that guy, like 40 minutes later, he like doesn't know who he is anymore and he doesn't know why God's forsaken him. No, there's only one place in all of scripture in which the name of God is invoked twice in a row as a dire crying out to God. My God, my God. There's only one place. Psalm 22. And every Jewish person, the only people at the crucifixion that didn't know he was quoting Psalm 22 were the Roman guards. You know what I'm saying? Everybody else who grew up with the scriptures knew that when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he was quoting Psalm 22. And the, the funny thing about it was he quoted it right at the very end of everything that happened, which I'll get to in a minute. I want to just talk about two things quickly wrapped up in the fact that the number one first step in rising out of whatever pit we're in, whether it's an unjust death or it's just whatever you're dealing with, is you start with crying out to your God who is hidden. Right? It feels like he's forsaken you. He doesn't feel close. He is, as scripture says in one place, I think in Isaiah, the hidden God. There is a sense in which God is hidden. And while you are experiencing his seeming hiddenness, that he feels far from you, or it feels like he's forsaken you, you cry out to him like he doesn't forsake his afflicted one, and that those who seek him will praise him. Meaning, he will do something so that in the end, you will have been delivered so that you will thank him. Right? So the, the first thing about is, is that your cry to him matters. Your cry to him matters. There's, there's no, um, there's no doubt that if anybody feels like they ought to have the call for God to immediately, personally, supernaturally act to save them, it's the person in Psalm 22. Whether it's David who originally wrote it, whether it's a thousand years of people who sang it about their own lives crying out to God, or whether it was Jesus who quoted it on the cross. That the picture in that psalm of somebody who's being killed brutally, unjustly, by people who hate and mock God, who are, have no pity for the dignity of that person's humanity, and who in doing so are mocking God because the person they're killing loves him. And so they say, let's see if God helps him. So they're mocking God's loved one and God. Like if there's any point where like somebody might step in and kick some butt, right? It would be there, right? And the level of inhumanity is described in kind of gory detail, right? From um, using a lot of the metaphors of like wild animals, right? So like, I don't know if you've ever been around a bunch of like bulls. Like they're not nice creatures. Farmers are always like selling them off to be killed because they just like, they're nuts. Okay, I remember I grew up on a bee farm, and my dad one time, he just, this bull just decided just throw him through the air. Just got his head under him, just threw him eight or ten feet, just landed in a pile. That's just one bull, not being surrounded by him. Does that make sense? Or being gored by the ox, 
or being torn apart by a lion or being ripped apart by wild dogs. I don't know if you've ever been around a pack of wild dogs. I haven't in America. I've been in other countries where there were packs of wild dogs, and they're a little bit ferocious. You know what I'm saying? You got to be careful. Even the, even the verse, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Like, like we go, we go, oh, pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion, that's Jesus. What do you think that meant to people a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, when there wasn't even crucifixion yet? Right? You see, that was written by David. David was a warrior. Right? The, the hope of every warrior is that even if you get killed in battle, you're going to get killed with your sword in your hand. Like, you're going to be fighting, and you'll get killed, but you will be in a position of strength. Your dignity won't be taken from you. you you'll, you'll fight willingly, and you'll die if you need to, but like, you, your, your strength won't be taken from you. The, the idea of having your hands and feet gouged or pierced, right? The, the verb that is translated there is just the word for lion. That's it. They've lioned my hands and my feet. Translators have struggled with that for like 3,000 years. Pierced is about right. Gouged, pierced, it works. All the translations say pierced. Because if you have a warrior, the greatest way to humiliate them before you finally kill them is to pierce their hands and their feet so they can't hold a weapon anymore and to wreck their legs and feet, like break their leg or pierce their feet so they can't run. They can't run a fight another day, and they can't grab a weapon to try to kill you while you're about to kill them. You can, you can laugh at them, and you can mock them, and you can scorn them, and all their strength is gone, and you can humiliate this used-to-be-strong warrior person before you take his life. It is maximal humiliation, unmanning of the strong. I could spend a lot more time on that. Now think about this. When Jesus is there, crucified— and he decides to cry out to God. Why does he say this? He could have, like, as the Son of God, uttered, like, some inter-Trinitarian divine mis mis mystery of speech in which the Son and the Father would ultimately know each other, and that he would speak in words utterly known by the Father, that we would have no connection to or capacity to understand, right? He could have uttered a new prayer, something that had never been said before, that was utterly his own, that we might pray like the Our Father or something like that that would have been cataclysmic and groundbreaking, special for that terrible moment. But he doesn't do it. He picks a prayer that normal, like, peasant men and women sang at church for the last thousand years. It was written by a great king, but just a man who suffered in incredible ways. He picked, a, he picked an utterly human prayer. And he said, I'm experiencing this prayer right now as a man. Do you understand? Like, even as he dies as the Son of God, when he prays, he chooses to pray in such a way as that we have prayed throughout our lives. In the same feelings that we have had, feeling like God is far off, that he's somehow forsaken us, that he's not here, that no matter how undignified we become, no matter what the attack is, no matter what reason it is, maybe it's just like you've had just a dull year, and you just can't—don't really feel anything because you've just had a a bad year, and it just feels like everything is far from you, including God. Jesus is demonstrating that his prayer as a, the common man mattered to God. It was enough because your prayer to God as a common human being is enough. He cares about it. He cares about your prayer. He, it matters to him. And, and why am I telling you that? Because, because so that's all you've got, is to cry out to God. So do it. 
See, that's the thing. See, the reason you don't, you don't think it matters, you don't think it, it's worth anything, you don't think he listens, you don't think he's really there. He is there. He does hear it. When Christ himself was dying, he cried out like a common human being because he wanted you to know that when a man or a woman cries out to God in their despair, even when it feels like God has forsaken them, he has not forsaken them. And the, cr the cry, the call, it matters. He will not despise or disdain the cry of his afflicted one. And those who seek the Lord will yet praise him. Right. The second thing to try to affirm the truth of that is that not just does your cry matter, but it's also true that Jesus demonstrates that one of the reasons why your cry matters is that the hidden God really is present. Right? It's, it's true that in the crying out of Psalm 22, it starts out with, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the experience. Right? Shouldn't God intervene when I'm being destroyed and he's being mocked? And if he doesn't intervene now, is he ever present? Is he ever going to do anything? One of the things that's interesting about this is that Jesus quotes this at the end of his crucifixion. Now think about that, the irony for a second. He quotes the, the universal human common man's argument that God has forsaken us in his abandonment of us as our life is being destroyed. He quotes it at the end of his, his crucifixion. Why does he quote it at the end? Right? You see, for his disciples who were there, clearly for Matthew and then Mark, ultimately, when they heard that, they were like, Psalm 22. And then they either had it memorized or they went back and read it later and they were like, oh my God. Every single one of these things happened. Like it literally played out like a play. Wicked men gathered around him. They did all these things. They, they, they crushed him. They beat him. They, they literally, they literally pierced his hands and his feet. They literally divided his clothing. They literally played a game while he was dying to decide who would get the most expensive piece of his clothing. This literally all happened, right? Think of the irony of that. The God who apparently wasn't there was so providentially in control of every single thing that happened that a thousand years before he could exactly narrate what would happen when wicked men who had no interest in doing anything that he wanted them to do did exactly what he had chosen for them to do in the crucifixion and killing of his own beloved one. So he was involved. He was present. He allowed his beloved one to be killed horribly like this, and he was totally present in that he was providentially in control of everything that was happening. There was no forsaken. He was not far away. He was right there. His providential will, however, was not to save his beloved one from death, because in Jesus' case, he was dying for the sins of the world. But in all of our cases, God is working out something larger in his pleasure and in his will and in his wisdom that does not include our rescue many times. And in our deaths, it won't. Whatever, I mean, God often like does things to rescue us. And, he's, and he says in the Psalm 22, look, I know at other times people ask you to intervene right now in real time space, and you did. You did it. You like, you like vanquished an enemy or you raised them up or you like you gave them some kind of prosperity. Like you, you did exactly what they asked for. And right now you're not doing it. And here's the thing. You're going to experience both of those in your life. You're going to experience moments where if you cry out to God, 
Like something will happen. You'll like, you'll praise God. You'll be so glad that it feels like the God who felt like far away was right there and he did the thing you asked him for. And then there are other times, like when you will die, it will feel like everything has been forsaken and you have lost everything and you are helpless. All you have left is to cry out to God and then you die. And in both situations, the supremely providential God is intimately involved in every single action, shepherding either your prosperity or your demise. And he will do both. He's also present in Jesus as the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. Right? Jesus went through what you're going to go through to demonstrate how it is that you who seek the Lord will yet praise him. That the God who seems like he's forsaken us has not forsaken or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one. Because we only see as far as death. If, if you talk to people who are ir- irreligious and they're angry about this, that people suffer under injustice and die and God does nothing about it, it is because their logic ends at physical death. They think discussion beyond physical death is like some kind of otherworldly, clap-chap, like mysteriously supernatural superstition. They don't allow it into evidence. And so therefore, all that matters is up until the point of your death. And therefore, if you're forsaken in this way, belief in God can be nothing but worthless. And that's one of the reasons why God demonstrating what he was going to do on a different time scale with his Christ was so important. That he was killed that way, like he was forsaken by God. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Why three days? It's not even three days. It's like parts of three days. It was long enough to be dead dead, to be in the grave. It was long enough to have a portion of the narrative that he wasn't dying and he wasn't alive. He was dead and in the grave, right? Dead enough that the women could come and bring spices because he would be starting to rot. Dead, dead. Just like you, just like me. We're going to live. We're going to die. We're going to be dead, dead. And then we're going to rise. Now, you and I are probably going to be dead quite a bit longer than th- parts of three days. Okay? But what, what, what scriptures are teaching, what the resurrection of Christ is teaching is, is that that's the only difference. You see, that's the only difference. Other than that, we will be just like the Son of God. If we are his own. If we are the ones who cries out in that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what you're there doing to your beloved link? I belong to you. I believe in you. I'm yours. Even dying this way, even accusing you, I'm going to call out to you. If we are his own, we will be like his suffering one. We will be like anyone who is his own. We will die, and we will be dead dead, and we will rise. And our timetable will be different, but that's it. And he's demonstrated that in the resurrection of his son. He raised him imperishable. He will raise you imperishable. Death is not the last line of his administration of justice. Those who seek him will yet praise him. Even the people murdered in injustice, who have died horrible deaths, calling out with the name of Jesus on their lips, and then being extinguished. And people look at that and they say, that's meaningless. There's nothing there. There's nothing to that religion. No. No, because God will raise his beloved ones. He has not despised those who called out to him, and those people will yet praise him. 
and lastly, Scripture teaches that this is true of, of everybody who experiences the work of the Spirit of God, right? God says that because of the death and resurrection of His Son, that when we put our trust in Him and He saves us, He gives us His Spirit. And it says in Ephesians 1 that the Spirit He gives us is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power. The power that is in the Holy Spirit is the same power that raised Christ from the dead, which means this. You will not just be affected by the power of the resurrecting Spirit when your body raises from the dead at that day. You actually have within you, if you're a believer, the same powerful Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because you're going to have to do a lot of rising between now and then, frankly. You're going to get beat down in a lot of ways. You're going you're to pursue godliness and people aren't going to like you for it. You're going to try things and you're going to fail. You're going to try to overcome your wounds and actually be the person God meant you to be and you're going to fall short of it. You're going to live years of your life in times that are going to be incredibly discouraging. You're going to do the right thing for the right reason. It's going to turn out bad. And like all, in all kinds of ways, you're going to end up in the pit. You're going to get beat down. You're going to struggle. Things are going to be difficult. And in every case, God in the Spirit is going to say, Rise. I, I, the power is within you to rise until you can't rise anymore, until all that's left is, a, what is the only rising is a crying out in your death. Rise. And you need to know whether it, you're just dealing with the discouragement of today or whether this year has been like Psalm 22 for you, or whether you have a terminal illness right now, or whether you need to store this away because things aren't bad right now, but they're going to be, because this is, this is earth, Right? If you believe in Christ, you have the spirit of rising in you. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead in his power is the same spirit that can help you, allow you, and give you the power to rise up over anything. In living or in dying, we belong to the Lord. God, as we um, come to this to the ordinance of communion, and as we baptize people, these are the things that we do to show that we believe. They're rituals of deep meaning that you've given us, and so we pray that as we celebrate them, we would celebrate. That we would build up our faith, and that you, by your Spirit in us, would build up your, our faith in you. That we would remember the death and resurrection of Jesus as your work of salvation, procuring legal justification for us, forgiving us of our sins, and also Jesus as the righteous death. The man who stood before the gaping jaws of injustice and murder and death and the curse and faced it as we all can and who cried out to you in the worst of those moments knowing that you were near, that he wasn't utterly forsaken, that he would yet praise you, and that it meant something. Like it says in the end of the psalm that through what you would do, ultimately all the nations would turn to you, all the peoples would praise you, the poor would be affected, the rich would be affected, and that, and that all of the earth would know your name. We recognize that when we suffer with you the way Christ suffered on the cross, not only does what happened, happen, it says in Philippians that becoming like you in your death, somehow we attain the resurrection from the dead, but in addition, like it says in Colossians, we fill up in our flesh that which is lacking in Christ's affliction, Meaning that Jesus couldn't suffer for your worth in front of everybody who ever lived. He was in one time in one space. And by your spirit in us, we 
can suffer and live beautifully and live righteously and work for the good and serve others and pour our lives out in a way we would be unable to do if we didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. If we didn't believe that though sometimes we feel forsaken, you are close to your afflicted ones. Help us to be the ministers of Christ to people that we meet, the people we're meant to love, the people who are our neighbors. We pray that you'd stir that up in us again on this resurrection day. We pray in the Savior's name. Amen.